Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on the programme today on a rainy autumn day here in the capital is Kevin Hogston. Kevin is the head teacher of Collis Primary School, a primary school based in Teddington, Richmond upon Thames, London, which admits three to 11 year olds. Um, Kevin, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Likewise, Kevin, welcome. Um, it's a pleasure to welcome you onto the airwaves um, alongside me. Um, normally, at this point in the show, we tend to dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate we approach the subject from that angle because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves in the education sector, just how much has it affected things in the last few months for you? Well, since uh, casting our minds back to the 19th of March when uh, schools were in that uh, very difficult position of having to close our doors to our, our young pupils, it's been a crazy roller coaster of a time for, for school leaders and uh, all school staff, to be fair, including the children and the parents. I think the main challenges uh, with, with the whole of this, uh, this issue is about uncertainty. We all like to know a direction that we're traveling in, traveling in and what we need to do. And because of the changing situation, the changing guidelines and the uncertainty, that's been our biggest barrier over the last six months. And looking back over those last six months, is there anything that you would say that you've learned from this experience of crisis management, if we call it that? Absolutely. Lots and lots of things. Lots of uh, successes and lots of uh, challenges and mistakes as well. I think for us, leadership took very much a, a balancing act at Collis, making sure that we are doing the right things for the children while listening and responding uh, to the well-being and concerns of our community. And it was, it, particularly, it was particularly difficult for the staff initially to suddenly be told to change the way you teach. Teaching is a relationship-based activity, young faces responding in front of you, interaction, and all of the drama of the uh, the classroom stage was suddenly removed from us, and we were in a situation of isolation, working uh, at home, sometimes dealing with uh, family members that, that were unwell, but also looking at a completely different way of communicating to our young people, and that was a major change, a significant change to how uh, the profession carries out its uh, its duty to, to, to learning and uh, to help people understand things uh, from the, the whiteboard onwards. And um, with regard to the uh, the remote working side of things over the uh, the lockdown period before education did return in vogue in September, um, how was it sort of taking to leading from a distance in that way? Was it quite an easy transition or was it something that was maybe a little bit more complicated than that? Yeah, it was definitely, I mean, we were fortunate that we had a, we've got a body of parents that are supportive and, and really understood some of the challenges that we were facing. We, we we made uh, steady steps initially, and then uh, and then quicker progress 
uh, as we came to the summer and particularly now we, we, we feel that we've really really learned lots on, on online learning and how that happens. I think schools have found that uh, technology has been an issue, a different way of performing. You had safeguarding issues to, to look at as well. And also just keeping your head above water, thinking clearly during the, uh, the pandemonium and panic that was uh, hitting us with the, the, the daily news. I think the profession was a little bit bruised from the media. We, At certain times in May and June, we became a... As usual, education became a, a political football and we were kicked around a bit and bruised. But as a, as a school and as a profession, I think we've, we've come out of it very well uh, with the demands made uh, on, on every one of us, not just uh, the, the community here at uh, college. And thinking about sort of ongoing developments at the school as well, I understand that what the pandemic has also done is maybe put the brakes on uh, quite a bigger development project that's going on there, a big construction project within the school. Um, how has it been sort of managing from that point of view with social distancing and other guidelines coming into force? Yes, we've had, uh, during during all of this, we've got a, a, a multi-million pound building project that was uh, that's happening on our playground during uh, the whole of this uh, pandemic. So not only were we uh, dealing with social distancing and the, uh, the numerous guidelines that were coming uh, towards us from the DFE and how we make that work uh, and fill in the gaps. We also uh, had the, uh, the this wonderful building that's, that's growing in, in our, on our playground and how the supply chain for the contractors and how that was being delayed. Uh, and that was a, a really interesting stroke <laughs> challenge to make sure that we still had that building uh, being assembled and, 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 and uh, on target alongside all of the work that was going on in school with uh, the partial return in the uh, in the summer term of some of our pupils. And how has it been sort of managing things from a mental health point of view, both in terms of the lockdown period and also since pupils have returned? Because um, in your line of work, of course, it's not just about safeguarding your mental health and also that of all of the stuff you're working with, but it's also just as much about the pupils as well. And um, given their individual circumstances over the lockdown period, uh, there are some that may be returning that are maybe a little bit behind with their studies as well. So I can imagine it's been maybe a challenge trying to get the balance of that right. Absolutely. This this word of balance, it's, it's so critical with uh, how you approach things. The, the challenge, the dilemma for the school was that clearly if children hadn't been in school for six months and although there was the online online learning and uh, the tremendous support uh, from parents and the community for those children, clearly they, there was gaps uh, occurring. So the dilemma for the school was to push forward hard with the learning to close the gap while not uh, ignoring and pushing too hard the, the well-being agenda of What's it going to be like for staff returning? Lots of staff hadn't actually taught a class of 30 children uh, since March, and, and, and there was some adjusting there. But also for those children, particularly the children in year two, three, and four, who were unable to come back to school due to the, the guidelines of government uh, with which year groups should come back. And uh, it was interesting for them just to, to readjust, to re reconnect with their peers, reconnect with the school, try and make sense of this uh, this crazy situation they were dealing with. So indeed, the dilemma for us was this balance between pushing forward to close the gap so that we can uh, crack on with uh, our curriculum uh, and the lost learning, but also do it in a, in a careful and sensitive way 
so that we, uh, when we uncover things that, uh, that are still being uh, discovered from uh, the effects of lockdown. And with regards to um, those youngsters out there that may well be looking on at what is going on in this um, sort of um, economic um, environments at the moment with COVID and the impact that it's going to be having on their employment prospects. I'm certainly thinking people who are maybe young aspiring entrepreneurs who are maybe leaving school. What sort of advice, having worked with younger children, would you give them to really sort of get them to look up and look at the opportunities that are going to be out there as a result of this? Because despite the sort of doom and gloom, it's certainly all not that bad, is it, with all of this going on? I think, yeah, our our values uh, of care, challenge, collaboration, creativity, and importantly, courage have been very central in our staff's approach to learning. And and the children are well well versed in understanding the values that we've got. I think if if we had a a sixth value, it would be, be about being flexible. I think what it's taught us and a good learner is flexible. A good learner is someone that can adapt and change to a, mm. prob- a problem. There isn't a particular maths question that, uh, that is set in stone. You've got to use your knowledge and skills to work around it. And that's very much uh, how our curriculum works and how our approach is that uh, there's going to be things that you can't do yet, but there's also lots of different ways to tackle that problem. And, and so when our children go into secondary and, and further uh, into the job market, it's about having that uh, adaptable rather than a brittle approach to, to learning that's uh, hopefully going to see them in, uh, in good stead mm. uh, for years to come. Adaptability is incredibly important and also continuous learning, development and improvement. And that fundamentally as well is what leadership is all about. Um, even when we've maybe graduated university, we're in whatever position we're in, um, we're not finished products as leaders are we we're constantly learning and constantly developing and so many people whether they be leaders in business leaders within education they've described the COVID-19 pandemic as being a time where they've had to go back to basics look at overhauling certain processes and business case looking at different income streams and it just goes to show doesn't it that so much about leading is about learning and about trial and error fundamentally absolutely I think for, for us and, and for, for me personally, there's key things that you need to draw on as, uh, as basics of leadership. The first one is energy, making sure that you you are able to uh, to do the job in the sense of all the demands on you, and and you only have energy with good people around you. And and I think one of the key things is, is about your team. Uh, and as uh, a, a famous uh, Sir John Harvey Jones said, you know, surround yourself with people that are better than you, and, and in a way, your team. Uh, it's not down to you to, to do everything uh, yourself. It's about having that, uh, that delegation and that support from, from your peers so that you've got the energy to be able to have the courage to, uh, to do the things that, uh, that need to be done on uh, you know, a changing uh, day-to-day basis, really. And obviously, this is now your third or fourth headship, I believe I'm right in saying, Kevin. And I can imagine that coming into this one, you had no idea that you're going to be faced with a challenge um, as significant as uh, COVID-19. But do you feel that sort of getting through this so far is something that ultimately is going to galvanise you in your leadership role and also the team that you're working with as well? Because we so often hear it said, don't we, that you learn more in times of adversity than you do when things are going well? Absolutely. I mean, the, the although... It's going to be a, a, a good rest at half term, which is nearly upon us. The the, the challenges and the and, and the, as I say, the balancing act, the dilemmas, 
uh, and the courage that's needed has been uh, has been really interesting in in, in my personal reserves and and those of the uh, of the school from uh, from the cook to, uh, to to myself. We've all had to show different strands of uh, of courage and leadership, and it's about trusting everyone in your organisation that they're going to make the right decision and it's being there with them to uh, hopefully model it. Sometimes uh, that's easier said than done in a, in a, in a very busy school. But uh, I think it's, it comes down to just that courage of uh, making sure that you make the right decision. And uh, above my wall, I've got lots of quotes, but uh, whatever you do, in, in whatever job, you're going to have uh, challenges and you, you might have criticism as well. But uh, you need to be brave. You need to... Uh, be proactive with what you believe and communicate really, really carefully. But also, in the end of the day, you've got to do what you think is right. And uh, as long as you've got the uh, those children in your mind as the that they are the thing that you're here for. It's uh, mm. there's lots of other factors in in, in, in education that you uh, encounter and you deal with. But the bottom line is, are you doing the best for those uh, those young people? And the biggest challenge we've had is that they've been disadvantaged by losing this precious time at school. And so our challenge is to do our duty, really, to uh, try and catch up as much as we can in a a considered and careful way without uh, overdoing the the pressure for them, but also hopefully giving them some fun and and some hope uh, that uh, schools, although it's an important time and a a focused time for, for learning and getting those basic skills uh, established, it's it's also just being able to offer them that uh, that connection with their peers mm. and and uh, those crazy moments that uh, that you never forget uh, uh, to your dying day. Really, you're absolutely right, and nothing can replicate having children in the classroom, can it? And actually learning in person because the remote sort of provision of learning isn't a one size fits all approach. We've certainly seen that over the last few months, and just thinking about what challenges are still there to be overcome over the course of the year the next year or so um whereabouts do you hope college primary school is this time next year kevin and what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over the course of this academic year yeah i think we just want to ensure that all the children that come to us and, and all the supportive parents that are there on the school gate as well are still believing in us as the place where those children are getting the best deal possible in the sense of this two sides of the coin, really. Uh, the, the first side is those basic skills where they, they've they got the, the English and the maths and, and, and those key elements so that they can survive this curriculum and, and further on. But also the other side is that, that sort of well-being side where they, they're nice people to know, they, they've got a great personality, they, they're open to challenges and, and friendships, they show empathy, uh, and they enjoy coming to school and when they reach year six, or whenever they leave us, they look back on Collis as, uh, if not the best time in their life, then one of the best times that they've uh, they've grown and developed. And, and that's what we, that's why we're here. That's why we uh, we, we do what we do. And uh, if we can get as close to that uh, ideal as possible, uh, then uh, then then we'll we'll know that uh, we've done a good job and uh, we can sleep soundly in our beds. Uh, rest assured on that one. 
Exactly right. And um, I do love the positivity as well, Kevin. It is really, really infectious at a time like this. And we could all use a dose of that just to up the morale at this point in time. And I think just given how many variables there still are in all of this and the sort of scale of the tasks that are still there to be done, um, I think it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto our programme at some point in this next 12 months just to see how things are really starting to tick along. Great. Well, it's been really enjoyable just uh, sharing some of our sort of... uh inner discussions and in, inner sort of uh, feelings of uh, the last six months and uh, to have the opportunity to, to share that uh, wider. Uh, I've really enjoyed doing that. So, so thank you for the time as well. Mm. It's wonderful just to share that insight and expertise. It is fundamentally what we are all about, getting the authentic voices of all corners of British industry out there, education, of course, included. And um, most importantly as well, Kevin, until we do hopefully get to speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on. And that goes for everybody associated with Collis as well. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I'd just like to thank uh, my colleagues at school, but also the profession. You know, the Mm. teachers always get some in the media a bit of a bruising and uh, we've stood up during this time and I think most rational and sane people realise that uh, that schools have done their bit or more than their bit in making sure that the uh, the children continue to learn to learn and the country can move forward so uh, you know it's, it's not just uh, our, our colleagues it's, mm. it's uh, to everybody thanks for uh, supporting each other uh, and hopefully I've done my small part uh, in that bit. They certainly have. It's been a capital effort from the profession and we've seen collaboration and people working together on an unprecedented scale during this time. And it's one of the few positives that we can take from this um, sort of dark and dense cloud that's hung over all of us throughout this year. And hopefully we can sort of recapture that spirit and really take that forward from here. Um, I'd also like to extend a message to the listeners as well, tuning into today's podcast. Do yourselves, please stay well, look after yourselves and do be considerate of other people because that does make such a key difference in saving lives during this period of time. Um, to, for me, it was a pleasure today to welcome Kevin Hogston, head teacher of College Primary School in Teddington, onto the programme. Um, next up on the show today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, serving as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hill constituency for 28 years and holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership. His political exploits saw him elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 and I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing 
staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time but to others around you and the sector that you're working in that will be really important do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level 
the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by 
local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to 
everything being London-centric, I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think.
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
we want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.